If you're enjoying these episodes of Yankton's Yardbirds, join us on our support site called buymeacoffee.com. Please consider clicking the support the show link included in the description of each show. You could choose to donate five, 10, 15, or $20, or you can become a member. Members will receive extra content that will be added as the shows progress. This will include pictures of the vets, audio interviews, maps, write-ups, and much more content that will be available to members only. Please consider making a donation or becoming a member soon. And as always, thank you for listening to Yankton's Yardbirds. This podcast has been sponsored by Dr. Dan Johnson from Yankton, South Dakota. Formed in 1974, National History Day is an organization that operates an annual project-based contest for students in grades 6 to 12. Yankton students have successfully participated many times, and one of their leaders has been YHS teacher Doug Har. Please support Doug and Yankton students in National History Day. Thank you. Welcome to Yankton's Yardbirds, a podcast presenting the World War II stories of Yankton's veterans. After 165 interviews and countless hours of preparation, it's time to share these stories. As of now, they'll be shared by podcast and later will be presented in print. If you have questions, free to contact me at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. Please be advised that there is some offensive language within these interviews. When I'm speaking, I've added my language to more modern times. The Japanese planned on trucking their American prisoners to the north, but there were just too many of them, so the prisoners were forced to walk to their next location. A forced walk isn't cruel by itself, but the Japanese made it a living hell. Straka was among the men who gathered after the surrender. The men were in varying degrees of health. Amputees kicked out of hospital. The walking sick who had a disease, such as malaria or dysentery. Malnourished men who had fought for months on one half day's rations. Untrained military personnel who were flabby and just plain tired, but well-trained soldiers. The Japanese were sadistically brutal. Walter talked of the forced march. He consumed only one soup can's worth of rice during his nine days of marching. When he tried to drink water from a fountain, a Japanese soldier struck his back with a rifle butt. He was saved by friends who carried him until he recovered. The days were hot, and although there were some breaks, the men were given the sun treatment, which is no shade and no water. Blisters could kill a man. Men were so thirsty that their tongues swelled, making them gag. The men buddied up and talked to one another when they needed some help. Some men who tried to help others, which apparently demonstrated defiance to the Japanese captors, were bayoneted. Heads were decapitated. Approximately 2,330 Americans perished on the 65-mile forced march. The last man to have survived the Bataan Death March, Paul Kircham, who was in the 31st Infantry Regiment, died on the 17th of December, 2022. It's tempting to describe in detail all of the sadistic actions of the Japanese. It would require too much time. There are many books about the death march. 
I purchased Tears in the Darkness, written by Michael and Elizabeth Norman, which focused on Ben Steele, and completed the book while sitting in a park bench in front of a mall in March of 2015 while at Disney in Orlando, Florida. It moved me so much that I immediately called Ben Steele, who was residing in a Montana nursing home, to offer words of respect to him. Books penned by survivors are amazing. Soldier at Baton, published by the Minneapolis Rotary Club, to honor one of their own, Philip S. Brain Jr., a member of the 149th Tank Battalion, is noteworthy. The weak and injured men were killed first. Those men who dashed from the hot march to seize a cup of water were shot or bayoneted. They were only permitted to take sips of stagnant water where bloated animals and soldiers lay dead. Weak men were trucked away, never to be seen again. Early 1942 brought great sadness to the Sowies. All but Nick's eldest sister contracted malaria. They had no medical care, so they were forced to return to Agalar, which created great anxiety within the family because the Japanese occupied the town. The malaria killed Sawi's father. We couldn't attend my dad's funeral, Nick said. In addition, they discovered that Sawi's brother-in-law, Anafri Mina, had been in the death march. He survived, but according to Nick, he rarely spoke of the march. He likely saw the hideously unspeakable torture of Filipino soldiers and civilians. Only small nuggets of Onofre's experience popped out. He claimed that he survived by drinking water that had been purified first with iodine. The small bottle was hidden in his sock. Over 7,000 of Onofre's fellow Filipino soldiers died in the forced march, while the number of civilian deaths remains unknown. The Japanese had not planned to house so many prisoners, and they could have done much better. But the living conditions in the death camps were just as cruel as the death march. Stroka and the other thousands of men were forced into train cars at the end of the death march. They were crowded and sometimes suffocating, resulting in death and even insanity. Some claimed that the terror trains were worse than the death march. The train stopped at Camp O'Donnell, a former U.S. Army facility. Stroka attested to the continued harsh conditions that the 65,000 men faced at the camp. Too many men were crowded into the camp and just one tap provided water for those thousands of men. Malnourishment was common because the amount and quality of food was negligible. Men just gave up. Strucker recalled, you could see it in their eyes. He prayed every night that he would die. As a Catholic, he prayed the rosary on his fingers. Death was so common. Hundreds of men died during the first 30 days and there were no burial crews. Private Gerhard Spud Steinbach was one of those men who arrived at Camp O'Donnell. Born on the 12th of September 1915 in Yankton, South Dakota to Christopher and Anna Erickson Steinbach, Gerhardt had a brother Chris and one sister, Joyce Hagen. According to her, Gerhardt was active in school and was a good athlete, participating in tennis, football, and track. He was a member of the student council and Y Club and graduated from Yankton High School in 1934. He attended one year at both Yankton College and Southern Normal before enlisting in the Army. After training with the 440th Ordnance Squadron, the 19th Bomber Group Heavy, which transported ammunition, he was stationed at Clark Field. Gerhardt's parents received his last letter written sometime prior to the 6th of March, 1941, in which he referred to early 41 as a, quote, jamble, unquote, that has interfered with our correspondence. But I'm having many, many interesting experiences, he wrote. The conditions of O'Donnell led to diseases such as beriberi, dysentery, malaria. Visible horror and rancid smells permeated the camp. The men were forced to sleep in the open yard amongst the mosquitoes. After the first month, between 40 to 60 men died every single day. Approximately 1,600 American and 20,000 Filipinos died at the camp where bodies were simply stacked up. 
Straka contracted malaria just as hundreds of other men did, but there was no medical care. According to prison records, Steinbach died on the 13th of May, 1942. In his memory, there's a stone at the Yankton City Cemetery, and his name is inscribed at the Manila American Cemetery and Memorial. Overcrowding was slightly alleviated after Camp Cabanatuan opened. Walter said Cabanatuan, where about 20,000 men were housed, had measurably improved conditions. They received cooked rice twice a day. However, much of his time there was a blur due to the malaria, which took him in and out of consciousness. He had no memory of the first half of 1942 when he was in the camp hospital. Most men admitted to the hospital died. They quickly deteriorated there because there was no medicine and their rations were cut in half. Strucka only survived due to the help from other caring men, the names of whom are unknown, but Strucka gratefully called them angels. They fed him and helped him exercise his body. He was released from the hospital weak and worried on the 1st of February, 1943. Weight loss and early aging were part of the natural progression in the camp. Walter recalled a story in which he approached an unknown man and asked who he was. The man was thin and emaciated. He didn't recognize that he was another man from Brainerd. He lived across the street from me. He had been a large man and couldn't have weighed 100 pounds at the time. Sadly, he died two days later. Approximately 3,000 Americans died at Camp Cabanatuan. Dr. Sawi knows very little about Mina's time in the death camps. He did not want to talk about it. However, Mina once mentioned his job. Work, however gruesome, gave a purpose to life. Mina and three other Filipinos carried the dead outside the camp for burial. Their tools, bamboo poles, and blankets were crude, yet removing the dead was essential to maintain a small amount of cleanliness. After the surrender at Bataan, the remaining 13,000 Americans on Corregidor Island were surrounded by 75,000 Japanese soldiers. Warren Jorgensen's 1st Battalion was assigned to the east side of Malinta Hill, which was high in the neck of the tadpole. His platoon was ordered to guard the south side of that area. Each man in Warren's defensive area had an individual foxhole about 25 to 30 feet from the next man. Some men placed sticks across the top of the hole in case of bad weather. He was alone in his foxhole, which accelerated his wandering mind. His view was, quote, right down the China Sea, that blue, beautiful water. And there was a stretch of beach before that. I remember looking at that water and wishing that I was somewhere else, unquote. The Americans did not know at that time, but the Japanese landing on Corregidor was delayed by many weeks because of the chosen Japanese troops developing malaria. And it also took their Navy several weeks to move their landing craft from the Lingayen Gulf and to assemble them on the Bataan shoreline. In the meantime, Japanese bombers rained down periodically, which was equal parts harassment and death. 29th April was a particularly intense day of bombardment. It was the Japanese emperor's birthday. Artillery shells fired from Cabot, an American base which the Japanese had captured, occasionally rained down on them too. The Japanese also fired artillery shells from Maravellas. Rumors circulated that American guns didn't return fire because prisoners were placed near the Japanese guns. It was likely untrue. Despite the harassment, the Marines made use of the 27 days between the fall of Bataan and the ultimate Japanese landing to prepare for an attack, such as mining the beaches and erecting slides to drop bombs on invading troops. Life went onward, however. Jorgensen recalled twice daily meals of corn fritter and oatmeal, latrines and trenches, and sleeping outside with the iguanas. Constant work and smaller meals took a toll on the men. They lost weight, which led to a small surprise for Warren. While in China, he had purchased a ring containing the marine insignia. He was proud to wear it. One evening, it simply fell off. He looked for it, but it was lost. A marine in the chow line later approached him and asked if the ring he found was his. It was! 
Such small things kept him grounded and gave him a purpose. The men tried to keep busy by playing with cards worn thin from use. Someone found a cache of cigarettes and, despite the fact that he didn't smoke, Warren took some puffs. A battery is a heavily constructed location for permanent weapons, and Geary Battery housed eight 13-ton, 12-inch cannons. They are enormous. On May 2nd, Geary Battery, the largest in the island, exploded after Japanese artillery landed atop mortar shells in the magazine. 27 men were killed and many more were burned. The injured men were treated inside Malinta Tunnel. Shelling on May 5th lasted all day. Late in the afternoon, Warren Jorgensen noticed something. The Japanese bracket-fired their artillery right up the beach in an attempt to explode their landmines. Quote, I became petrified. They're coming right towards us. It was less than a quarter of a mile away, he said. We now know that this was a diversion. The Japanese even made moves along the Cabot coastline on the south side of the Manila Bay to give the impression that their assault was originating from the south. The shelling near Warren's Foxhole stopped at about 5 p.m. At night, the Japs don't really shell you. It starts again usually in the morning, he said. At dusk, Warren and another man decided to walk to the battalion galley for a bite to eat. Quote, while we were over there, the Japs started shelling again. We were close enough to the Malinta Tunnel, so a lot of us ran over there, unquote. The entrance to the Malinta Tunnel is on the east side of Malinta Hill. A runner appeared in the light of a three-quarter moon. It was about 11.30 p.m. He yelled, the Japs are coming. A battalion of Japanese had landed between North Point and Cavalry Point on the north side near the end of the Tadpole Tail, and the landing party hoped to be ashore by midnight before the moon rose. We came out and saw Americans were doing a platoon formation. No officers, but several NCOs. One yelled, we're going to go down to the beach and meet the Japanese. As a PFC, I am a rifleman. I have my weapons and two bandoliers, but no grenades. We hit the road. On the road was a row of cars, all of them burned. It was a mess, he said. Normally, the 500 yards east of Malinta Hill would have been tree-covered, but the month-long area assault created a vast flat land of stubble. When we made the turn and went to Battery Denver, that's when we ran to our first dead American, who I recognized. Warren didn't know his name. He thought to himself, let's go on. Whatever will be, will be. Denver, a high point south of Cavalry, was a sandbagged anti-aircraft position. They neared Denver. Out of nowhere, a Japanese machine gun opened up on them and they dove into a nearby ditch. The Japanese had taken Denver's crest and dug a front line of assault, although there were still American fighting men behind that line, especially around the short water tower. The Americans responded. D Company was a weapons company that had machine guns overlooking the beaches. Having been informed that Denver had been lost, the machine gunners gathered their guns and attempted to form their own skirmish line. At about 2 a.m., somebody yelled, Here comes D Company! That's wonderful, Warren thought, but something went wrong. Guys yelled, Captain Castle, there's Japanese ahead. As he came across the moonlight, they mowed him down right there. This shocked the men, and they had to regroup on the north side. We all ran for our lives, said Jorgensen. The NCOs eventually created a north-south skirmish line about 400 yards west of the Denver Battery, and Jorgensen was there. It was dark, and they couldn't see anything, but they fired at anything that moved. It was an awful night, confessed Warren. Fort Drum fired shells of the Japanese all night. Situated in Manila Bay, Fort Drum is a unique island that is the equivalent of a concrete battleship. Its walls are 25 feet thick, and they are rotational 6-inch and 14-inch mounted guns that could fire shells 12 miles out to sea. By then, the decision had been made to send the 4th Marine Reserves, composed mostly of Army Headquarters personnel and the sailors from the Canopus. 
It was feared that the Japanese intended a second landing, which made the decision difficult. Do the reserves head east to bolster the skirmish line or wait until a possible second landing in the north? They were ordered to advance to the easterly forward positions. When the sun rose the next morning, Warren was still in line and firing away. However, something had to change. According to Warren, a brave NCO stood up and yelled, Keep shooting! We're going to kill those little sons of bitches! I thought, that's a gutsy son of a bitch. He made you feel better. Suddenly he yelled, Fix bayonets! This was remarkably different, and Warren was confused and worried. At that moment, as I was just putting another clip in my magazine, I got hit. A sudden explosion on the side. I fell off over on my side. It knocked me over. I looked around and saw the blood and thought, this is it. I stayed there five or so minutes. A guy next to me said, over in the foundation of that building is a corpsman, 50 yards. I could move my legs, so I figured I was going to live. I crawled hands and knees to the inside. He had me take off everything. He held up my gas canister, and it had a big shattered hole in it. You lucky son of a bitch. This canister saved your life. The bullet had just grazed my rib cage. I bled like a stuck pig, but I could still move. He put gauze on it. You aren't going to be any good to anyone here. You should haul your ass to Malinta if you do it. I left my rifle there. I hobbled, and I got into a wobbly run. At 9.30 a.m., spotters on the north side of the skirmish line saw Japanese tanks splashing in the water off barges near Cavalry Point. It would take no more than 30 minutes for them to arrive at their line. This was the beginning of the end. In our next podcast, we will complete the Battle of Corregidor and follow Warren Jorgensen and Robert Phillips through their captivity. If you are interested in sponsoring an episode of Yankton's Yardbirds, please contact David Hosmer at davidhosmer at hotmail.com. All content for this podcast was created by David Hosmer, and all production was performed by Eric Berenger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yankton's Yardbirds. <laughs>